Hi everyone, I'm Mark Cooper from Bivar RE and welcome to this latest episode in our Rethink Energy podcast series. Today I'm pleased to be joined by Rasmus Niedergaard, Managing Director of Act Renewable, and Liam Salter, CEO of Reset Carbon, both energy consultancy firms. And for this podcast, we are talking supply chains. Multinational businesses are making big commitments to cut CO2 emissions, but this means addressing their supply chains, where around 80% of emissions come from. I hope you enjoy this episode. You can check out other podcasts and content at rethink-energy.com and follow us on social media to join the debates. Welcome, Rasmus and Liam. Thank you very much. Thank you, Mark. We dive straight in, guys, with a nice, easy question to begin with. So looking at the, the green transition, the renewable transition, a lot of big name brands are getting a lot of media attention. But obviously, behind these brands are supply chains, and quite often they are big and complex ones. So just how important is it that big brands take their supply chains with them on the same kind of transitional journey, given the complexity and size of these supply chains? Where do you start in trying to bring them along? Rasmus, do you want to take that one first? It's very important, actually. I would say it's essential because with about 60% of the world's energy consumption, having a corporate or a private company as the end consumer, we know that the supply chains are really critical for us as a globe to get to the 1.5 degrees recommended by the IPCC. So first of all, 60% represents the corporate side, and then the supply chain is the vast majority of that. The multinational brands, for them to deliver on the commitments that they have made, they need to bring their supply chains along, and they actually the ones that has to deliver the most savings. So that's what we're looking into. And Liam, where as a corporation, as a multinational business, do you start when looking at your supply chain and trying to take that with you? We're talking different size companies in different parts of the world, different rules, different regulations. Yeah, I mean, I think quite a lot depends on the sector that you're in and what your supply chain looks like. And so, you know, we see quite a lot of variety in there. Things that are important, though, questions like, do you have long-term strategic relationships with your suppliers or is it much more transactional? So if you're following an outsourcing model and you're chopping and changing in your supply chain and you're following like lease costs, you have shallower relationships and you have less leverage to have an environmental conversation. Other issues are, you know, what do your suppliers look like? Are they big multinationals in their own right, like a Foxconn or a Taiwan Semiconductor, or are they small, independently owned factories? Because again, the bigger guys are going to be much more straightforward to engage. So I think, you know, there's no one size fits all in terms of strategy, but certainly a very important thing that the brands need to consider is, you know, where can I start? Where can I get traction quickly? And who in my supply chain do I have a good enough relationship with that they can respond to this new concern as their customer that I have? So is it a case of tackling the kind of lower hanging fruit first to get the ball rolling and prove the principle and then kind of work on more difficult parts of the supply chain later on and bring them along or you try and do it all at the same time? No, totally. It's prioritization is critical. We've seen companies that try to sort of take a standardized approach to all suppliers kind of bounce off the outside. Transaction cost is too high. It's too many conversations. You've got to start and leverage the strongest relationships that you have. That's the place to begin because those are the partnerships that you can most likely innovate with. And I think the other issue is what we see in a lot of businesses is the way that a brand may not necessarily lend itself towards valuing environmental performance 
of your suppliers. And so you need to start talking to your own sourcing teams and the methodologies that they use to prioritize and allocate your spend as a brand in order to ensure that you can direct it towards greener suppliers. And so again, if you start with the big guys, you can also then bring your own sourcing teams along on the ride. They can see the value proposition, they can see how it works, and then they can help you take it to the next wave of suppliers in your supply chain. So it's a step-by-step approach. And Rasmus, back to you. I mean, whatever you do, it's complicated. The bigger the business, the bigger the supply chain, the complex it is. What are the benefits, I guess, starting from the perspective of the bigger brand first? Why are they even embarking on this? If we look at the bigger brands in the apparel sector, their own carbon footprint usually represents less than 1% of the material of one of the product's uh, footprint. So I think that alone sets the stage that these suppliers that we're talking about here is probably representing between 60 and 80% of the carbon footprint of a company. And that's not an unusual perspective. Even in manufacturing, in sort of classical European or North American manufacturing, the footprint of the actual company itself is maybe around 10 to 15%, where you still have at least a carbon footprint that is way above 50% in the supply chain. So as I said, it's really just essential to bring them along. And that is also the reason why these companies are focusing so much on it, because they have now done their own part. You have seen the power purchase agreements that has been signed in North America and Europe focused on the brand's own footprint, so the so-called scope two emissions. And now the NGOs and the market is moving in a direction where, well, it's not actually enough that you're just taking care of your own footprint. You have to take responsibility for your full footprint. And that's where you could say the real complexity happens because suddenly you have to get somebody who you as a brand has a contractual relationship with, where you are, as Liam described before, maybe going for the lowest price for a certain product to engage with you on a journey where they have to potentially spend some money up front or invest in green solutions, which is not necessarily directly linked to the procurement that you're making of a product. So it is beyond your sort of your own 100% interest or impact. And therefore you will be in a situation where you really have to manage your, you have to get your supply chain to deliver emission reductions for you to meet your target. At the same time, as Liam described before, it can be a challenge because the way that your procurement is set up is really about reducing the costs of the product. And that's something that we need to see changing. And now a lot of the companies that has joined the RE100s, it's a great movement and it's very inspiring, but they are only looking at their own footprint. The next wave that we're seeing with the science-based targets is really including your footprint and your supply chain. And even for the apparel and sportswear industry, we have the UN Charter for Climate Change, where we're looking at an absolute emission reduction at 30% for all of these brands. And that means almost a 30% emission reduction in absolutes for the entire apparel and sportswear industry across Southeast Asia, as an example. So in many ways, this is the reason why they're now engaging so heavily with the supply chains and have to come up with alternative solutions to engage with them because they are very reliant on their suppliers to deliver emission reductions for the brands to be able to keep their promises. I mean, emission reductions, a good thing, and taking that to the next level for bigger brands means addressing their supply chains. Consumers want brands to be more responsible and, you know, are more and more studies showing they are spending their money accordingly. But in terms of any direct benefits from this transition from for bigger brands and moving to renewables, you know, are there direct business benefits for doing that? Or is it simply a case of acting responsibly and being committed to, to driving through those CO2 reductions? 
Well, we know that the cost of renewable energy has, has gone dramatically down and in parts of the world it's even cheaper than the conventional alternatives. So yeah, that could be something where the brand in the very near future will be able to leverage and, and combine the cost savings with renewable energies or, or, or low carbon solutions. But I think right now the brands are focused on delivering on their promises on emission reductions. So that's where you have the benefit. Now, I would say a spin-off benefit that we are seeing with some of the clients that we're working with is that they are getting closer relationships with their suppliers, or you could say differently that their strategic supplier base, the ones that they're engaging with on long-term, where they're focusing more on partnerships and probably less on a sort of a one-off cheap purchase is a growing base. And we see that with multiple of the brands that they are focusing much more on their strategic suppliers because they're asking more than just a product of them. They're also asking them to engage in, for instance, renewable energies. Right. So we have big brands making big commitments and clearly, you know, they see the benefit in making that transition from a corporate responsibility point of view, also in terms of how that brand is perceived by consumers. Liam, if we come then from, I guess, the view of the supplier then, the supply chain, and again, as you mentioned, maybe we're talking about big businesses here, maybe we're talking about small ones. I mean, what is the benefit for them in going along with that transition, not just kind of being dragged along by the big brands, but actually wanting to engage and wanting to move forward with their own renewable transition? Yeah, that's a key question. And it's probably worth adding that our business reset is based in Hong Kong. I would say we look at this conversation from the supplier side. And certainly our market is expected to be, as a solutions provider, suppliers. And again, it depends on the sector, but to generalize, suppliers are used to being responsive to their customers. So that's the first question that supplier will say is, okay, I'm getting new environmental programs, got carbon target. Is it serious for my customer or not? So is not participating in this going to impact my customer relationship, my business opportunity? And and often the answer is no, not really, right? So I think historically what we've seen is brands will throw all kinds of environmental programs at their suppliers. The theme changes year on year, depending upon what's in fashion. And suppliers have kind of learned how to go along with it without getting serious about the way that they manage their factories. Let's say they're not going to transform the way they do their manufacturing unless their customers are really, really serious. And often when they interrogate that a bit, they find that their customer is not really serious. What we've got now that I think is quite interesting is we've got brands setting quantitative targets that they can be tracked on. So they're going to have to report them. If they start to miss them, then that's going to be very visible. And because lots of brands are doing the same thing, there's this peer pressure, you're going to miss it, your peers not missing it, that generates commercial pressure. So suppliers are looking at that and going, oh, maybe this is different um, because we can see that the brand customer is much more exposed on this issue than they have been on some of the ones in the past. So maybe this is something that I've got to take more seriously. Also, what we're seeing especially for large suppliers, you know, they're big, highly visible companies in their own right. And their domestic markets are also shifting in terms of regulatory pressure, stock exchange requirements, peer-to-peer pressure, and climate change and carbon is becoming a, a corporate issue in its own right inside markets like Hong Kong, Taiwan, China, and some of the Southeast Asian markets. So if you want to be a leading corporation and you're listed on the Hong Kong Stock Exchange, you kind of need to start getting your act together on carbon, no matter what your customers are saying. I think the value proposition is strengthening, but I would still say that there is a quite a lot of work to do on that. 
it's not that, you know, suppliers kind of get this message from their customer and they go, right, we're off. It's a done deal. It's absolutely not. The ability of these brand targets to succeed will depend upon how serious the brand is and how well they engage their suppliers and how much of a priority it is for them. And B, also what happens, what else suppliers are exposed to in their domestic markets in terms of these other pressures. And then picking up on that point, then do you sense that the suppliers are waiting to see if this is something that brands are truly committed to and are going to push through or whether perhaps those commitments wax and wane and perhaps aren't followed through? Yeah, I think it depends on the sector. But in general, I would say the big suppliers of consumer goods, so maybe apparel, electronics, food and bed, this kind of stuff, they kind of get it now. So I I feel like the big guys are now moving towards developing their own strategy, a part of which is, you know, pressure from their customer. And I think the question is going to be what happens to the kind of next level down, the mid-sized guys who are often pretty strategic, do a lot of volume for leading brands, or maybe they have less sort of visibility in their home markets. For them, the customer pressure is going to be more important. And these guys are definitely still in wait and see mode. If I could add to that, I think what we have been seeing with our corporate clients is that they have for years been waiting for the suppliers to sort of change their perception. I mean, the traditional description is that the suppliers are basically just sitting and waiting for directions from their client. And then they're going to deal with those directions almost one by one and just respond to them as they come along. But now I think we are seeing some of the suppliers that are really leading this, that are seeing the strategic opportunity to actually position themselves and take market shares because they have this green profile. And we're even seeing some of the strategies for some of the larger suppliers is containing this besides that they want to be profitable and they want to be a preferred supplier for a certain sector, sustainability or renewable energy or low carbon becomes a significant part of such a strategy. And that's, I think, is something that is fairly new. And I'm expecting to see maybe not in the very short term, but at least the midterm, that we're going to see a sustainability profile on the supplier side to become a competitive advantage for some of them. And we do see some of the first movers now that are saying, yeah, we want to supply to the bigger consumer brands. We know that the carbon emission topic is really key for them. Therefore, we're actually trying to put strategies together, not only because they want, but because we expect that we can attract more clients within the same sector. And that's very encouraging if that transition is happening that way and we're going from a uh, kind of pull scenario to now a kind of push and pull with both the bigger brand and suppliers recognizing the importance of the transition and what's in it for each of them and their wider corporate responsibilities. We touched on this a, a bit at the start of the interview. So given that both brands and suppliers increasingly making this transition and, and seeing the benefits So where do you begin? We have some of the bigger brands who are perhaps well on the way, um, others who are early in the journey, others who are, you know, yet to start and don't know where to start. So what do you say to them? Where do you begin? Yeah, I think the most important thing is you got to know your footprint. You got to have your segmentation in place. You got to know who your suppliers are. You need to understand what they're emitting, how much they're emitting. And then you need to also to understand what kind of opportunities they have available. So such a mapping, which some of the larger brand has already done, it's really crucial because that's going to help you prioritize because this is not going to be done overnight. It is a long-term commitment in some of the countries, especially where the supply chains are placed in Asia. You don't have that many opportunities. So you really need to pick your lowest hanging fruits first. So I would say know your footprint and know your supply chain and understand where you can get the lowest hanging fruits first. We've talked a few times now on barriers and long-term and speed and pace of change. 
time is not on our side when it comes to the renewable transition. As we started um, talking about at the start of the interview, we don't have a large window of opportunity now if we're going to avoid the worst effects of climate change and keep below 1.5. And at the moment, we are not moving quickly enough in whichever aspect of the renewable transition. What can be done to speed things up to a pace that's needed? Liam? Well, I mean, I think we've got to be realistic about how much sort of Western brand-driven change in supply chains can impact. I mean, I think ultimately we are going to need regulation in, for example, Asian markets to kick in if we want to hit targets anywhere around one and a half degrees. It's not going to just be done by a group of brands adding this into the things that they want their suppliers to do. So I think the value of the supply chain discussion in this context is one of the areas where this idea that if I dramatically reduce my carbon emissions, it's good for my business. So I think what it's doing is it's helping to unlock this idea that, well, actually carbon is part of my commercial strategy. And it's also showing to regulators that, hey, we can get 30 to 50% reductions per manufacturing site cost-effectively. That has a whole bunch of potential benefits from a national policy perspective, from an energy policy perspective, and that encourages supporting regulation. But, you know, to be clear, unless we get that supporting regulation, this brand push will only go so far. Because when we think about the amount of product that is linked to the brands that are making these commitments, it's a fraction of Western demand and it's a fraction of global demand in any, even if you pick consumer products. This is a start. It needs to quickly demonstrate the business case for dramatic carbon reductions in light industrial sector in emerging markets. And then we really need the regulator to pick up on that and help to kind of really drive that in deeper to the parts of the industry that you know, the Western brands just will not get to. And Rasmus, your views on that, and I'm going to throw in an extra one here. Some parts of the globe are emerging from the current health crisis, and we are seeing a lot of calls to build back better and calls that the huge sums of money that are being injected into economies should go towards helping to speed up green renewable transition. Do you think that might be something that will become the catalyst that we need to speed up the transition? This uh, referral to the COVID-19 situation and that economies are now trying to sort of to rebuild their strategies around green future approach. To be honest, I think I've only seen it from sort of Western countries. And I don't think that it's going to make a huge difference if Germany is going to follow a renewable strategy as part of their rebounds from COVID-19. The challenges that we have in the Asian markets are that there is a lot of restrictions So the fact that it is regulated markets, that the legislation is simply not geared towards offering credible renewable energy at scale is really the challenge we are having. So I do agree with Liam that regulations has to change to make this happen. Currently, we are seeing brands dealing with this quite individually. And of course, you can do that if you're Nike or if you're Apple um, or, or, or Google because your impact is so large. But I think for the smaller brands, the ones that doesn't have the leverage that these major brands has is that maybe they have the bargaining power with a limited number of suppliers, but they don't really have it. And even the bigger brands may have um, in the size of maybe two to 300 strategic suppliers which they have a solid impact on. But then the remaining 500 or 1,000 suppliers where they may have a purchase percentage of a couple of percent, well, they don't have that influence on them. So one of the things that we're seeing at the moment that we're really delighted to see moving is that some of the brands are now within sectors starting to work together. And this collaboration 
you have to also see that from a, a supplier perspective is, is quite welcoming because they are now not being asked to report five different ways from five different brands or having five different targets. If the brands actually in sort of smaller clusters, if you will, groups of three, four or five, that has a much higher impact and now starting to standardize their approaches. I'm not talking about the RE100s here where you have 250 brands that has to agree on their way forward, but smaller groups then can focus in on specific sectors and really showcase that it's possible to accelerate the uptake of, of renewables or even the carbon emission reduction agenda. Help these suppliers understand how they can move in the right direction here and basically simplify it for them and make sure that they're not overexposed with the demands and, and requirements from all different kinds of brands, but they're actually trying to standardize and, and simplify such an approach. That's something I'm, I'm quite keen to see happen more. We're seeing it in the apparel industry at the moment that some of the brands are, are starting to collaborate. We are potentially seeing it also in the chemical industry. So where you have these overlapping uh, supply chains, the brands should be more interested in setting up little task force that can sort of focus in, in a certain direction for a limited group of shared suppliers. I'm curious to see how much more we will get, you know, when sensitivities about who's in your supply chain and what you're buying from them get in the way. And I think there's a lot of learnings and apparel for other sectors where, you know, the products don't have so much IP built into them, right? And so where manufacturing them is easier and, you know, there's more shared suppliers and that kind of thing. Because in a way, with apparel, I think what you've seen is there's a view taken on the brand side that as a sector, we better clean this up a bit because otherwise we've got credibility problems with our customers in general. So there's been that driver and it's led to institutions like Sustainable Apparel Coalition, which has been actually quite productive in terms of it's not just been a, a sort of a big talking shop like I think we've seen in other sectors but they've actually developed methodologies for engaging suppliers benchmarking tools data bases and so we've got a, a sort of a dynamic there that sort of promotes collaboration and a lot of that I think is scalable to other sectors but I'm not sure right now that I see the institutional structure with other sectors that I see in apparel to take it forwards. I think Liam is right. I mean, we have an example from the automotive industry. What is quite interesting is that in Europe, you have a sort of a traditional automotive supply chain sort of sitting in the same region, France, Germany, or the majority part of it. And now we are seeing that the vehicles are almost going from being means of transport to becoming devices now. You're almost merging the automotive sector into the technology sector, if you will. And, and a lot of the supply chains are, are moving east. And at the same time, we're also seeing within this space that there's a big share of suppliers. So you have uh, seat manufacturers, uh, window glass manufacturers. So they are also in, the, in a sector like the automotive sharing a lot of suppliers. And it would be interesting to see sort of the parallel example that we used here, how that potentially could apply in such a sector. The fundament is really there to do a big difference. And who, who do you think would, would drive that, Erasmus? Is that NGOs? Is that government? I think it is the brands. And I just a simple example is if you take the tire manufacturer, like Continental, Pirelli, they all use the same. 
and it's all the same product. But right now we are seeing these tire manufacturers basically dealing with the sustainability topic individually as companies, rather than having a unified approach to it. Their products are not that different. Of course, I understand there is IP built in it, but it's basically rubber. So in many ways, they're not that different. So you could take a unified approach to that. And I know that the World Business Council for Sustainable Development actually have a working group on tires, but to be honest, I don't feel a lot has come out of it. So I would suggest that some of these sectors, it could be the German automotive sector could take such a sectorial approach to some of the areas where they know that they have a shared supply chain that has a unified product that all the brands are using at the end in the same shape or form and approach it. So I do think actually that the brands can drive this if they sort of get their head up from their own problems and try to look across and say, okay, how can we actually cooperate on a higher impact? They have managed to do that quite well on other topics to collaborate on policies. Uh, I'm sure they can do that here also if they want. I mean, if we look at apparel as that template, the UN Fashion Charter has all the brands signing up to the same target. They're all signing up to a what 30% absolute reduction target. You know, they're all going to their suppliers with the same problem, which makes it easy for them to collaborate because they all want the same answer. And so it's kind of weird role for the UN to play. I'm going to be interested to see to what extent that program can actually drive the sort of the modalities of how this target gets realized. But I think even just having everybody with the same target is already making it much easier for us, for example, to go talk to manufacturers because we can go, oh, look, customer A, customer B, customer C, oh, it's the same. And so you can satisfy multiple customer needs with one program on your side as a manufacturer. For manufacturers that are used to seeing lots of different initiatives that are kind of similar, but not really, and getting fatigued with all these different questionnaires they have to fill in and the different systems they're rated on and all this kind of thing. This is going to make it much easier for them to go, this is a priority, we better put some money into building our teams and have a look at this properly, rather than going, oh, this is just another customer initiative that I've got to manage. And so I think this consolidation, it can make a really big difference. It would be great to see some other sectors thinking more strategically about it. I completely agree. And I think now you talk about the same target. I think one of the things that we're starting to see is the brands are now not only just pushing a percentage redu- emission reductions onto some of their suppliers, they're actually asking them to investigate solar rooftops or participate in concrete PPA programs and negotiations. And I think what makes that really interesting is that if you have a larger group of brands that has that same approach, they can almost segment their supply chain and say, well, okay, I'll manage this this group of the suppliers, because we all sort of trying to yeah. make meet the same target, then I'll take this bit and you can take the other bit. And that way they will have like a, almost a threefold leverage on their own efforts. And I think that's where this hopefully becomes interesting and relevant. And I do recognize that it's it's usually, as you said, Liam, where the IP is sort of fairly low or the products that they're procuring is pretty standard. But I think for many suppliers, that's how it is, because we know if somebody's doing a really good business, soon there's going to be someone else doing it as well. So unless you're into very specific chemicals or pharma topics, I think we can cover very large parts of the supply chain by making those collaborations. Of course, I recognize that there also has to be renewable options available in the markets, but I will not sit here and say that the brands can act because the regulations is not in place. I really think that the brands can do a lot themselves in order to collaborate with each other and with their supply chains to meet these goals before governments are getting the right legislation in place. I think the brands are committing to 
phasing coal out from their suppliers. They never looked at their supply chain through that lens. And now they all know where their coal is. If you're a supplier and you're burning a lot of coal, you have immediately become a priority for any of your customers that are moving forwards with their UN target. Because usually what you do is you look at your supply chain, you go, 10% of my facilities are using coal and 80% of that comes from 5%. So immediately then you're getting this kind of fuel switch pressure, which I think provides an opportunity immediately for them. Well, what are you going to replace the coal with? That then, of course, opens up this conversation about how renewables can perform in in the world of thermal versus electricity. But, you know, you see a very quick evolution of that discussion because of this collaboration and because of this very, very specific ask. I think the challenge that we're having in that space is also that the commitments you have to do when you do switch from coal, for instance, to other renewable heat sources is going to be rather long. The investment cost is probably very high. So the conversation between the supplier and the brand will also change because there will need to be some kind of support for a longer term perspective, because I think the brand has to realize that they probably need to support their strategic suppliers even more for them to be able to to follow through with some of these changes. And and I see that with renewables in particular because it's so capital intensive. I think what we're hearing from developers in Asia, the economics look good, I can do, uh, maybe it's an on-site portfolio of rooftops for this manufacturer, but I'm not sure about their financial stability, their credit. What can the brand do to help with this? I've had that question a lot from the developer community. I think the brands are still, you know, whatever sector you're looking at, are still kind of wrestling a bit with that question. But I feel like they're going to have to step up and offer something. Liam, just a question for my side. What do you see as the main driver at the moment for the suppliers that to, to actually transition? I think the brand conversation forces them to have a look at it. And then they'll have a look at the economics. And if they've got access to that capital or easy access to that capital, they're confident that their manufacturing sites aren't going to shift around. And that's a reasonable investment for them. It can be justified from that perspective with a little bit of customer pressure. For the smaller guys, it's different. Uh, I mean, it's very much about, you know, do I really want to spend half a million, a million dollars? Is that a priority for me now, given all the other things I want to invest into? I think it's more of a capital allocation question for smaller suppliers. And so therefore, we need PPAs and things like that. You know, I feel like that equation isn't going to quite add up for a lot of mid-sized manufacturers unless there's something else thrown into the puzzle. I sense the conversation could go on for another few hours yet, but we are going to have to draw things to a close in terms of your final thoughts on top two, top three things that need to happen if we are going to see out this decade in the place where we put ourselves in the best possible position to avoid catastrophic climate change. What needs to happen, Rasmus? Yeah, well, now Liam and I, we sort of come from two different parts of this topic. I represent sort of the brand view and Liam the supplier view. So I would say my my first one is to say that the suppliers now needs to start looking at low carbon as an opportunity rather than something that the brands are asking them to do and therefore they do it. So I think they should become proactive rather than being reactive. Secondly, the brands also have to realize that they need to change their way of procurement in order to support the brands actually transitioning in this direction and then more collaboration across the sectors. And Liam, from your perspective? I think this begins with the brands who have made the commitments demonstrating that they are serious, which means that they value low carbon suppliers enough 
for suppliers to take this seriously, make the investments and hit the target. From what we observe in the marketplace at the moment, a lot of brands have signed up to a target that they currently do not have a sourcing model that they can execute. And so they're going to need to look very carefully at the way that they procure from suppliers and be prepared to really go into that and make some changes in terms of what they prioritize from their suppliers for this to become real. And I suspect a bunch of them are going to fail. I think it's really, really important that the NGO community in particular keeps an eye on this and that we track these commitments and how people are performing because what I expect to see happen pretty quickly, you know, it's going to split into two groups, guys that are really taking it seriously and guys that are playing around and doing the old project but actually aren't really going to drive a 30% or whatever it is target. And so I think we need to be ready to reward the brands that are really going for it and also pull the brands out that haven't thought it through and make sure they're very visible so that they get pressure to go back and do it properly. Well, I'm afraid that's all we have time for. A big thanks again to Rasmus and Liam for joining us. Great talking to you both. Thank you. Yeah, thank you, Mark. If you're interested in listening to more episodes in our podcast series or exploring more content on this topic, just visit our website at rethink-energy.com. Thanks everyone for listening and talk to you again soon.